If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 736. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. Use that coupon code November 2020, Black Friday 2020. Get 30% off every single one of my classes at McClanahan Academy. You, of course, get the free class when you sign up, 10 Myths of American History. But then use that coupon code to get 30% off everything, right? Anything you want on the website right now, 30% off November of 2020. 2022, excuse me. So use the coupon code Black Friday 2022, excuse me, 2022. <laughs> And get that 30% off. It's the one time this year I've done it, and I won't do it again. right? So you get 30% off now. Save a bundle. You get a lot of money off. Those bundle classes are great, too, because you get, in many cases, four classes for already a discount, and now you get 30% off more. So you're actually saving a tremendous amount of money by getting those bundle classes. You can also support the show by going to uh, brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way or, or click on the uh, the super thanks button under this video if you're watching on YouTube. Or uh, you can go to anchor.fm and subscribe there. You'll be a member at anchor.fm. All those ways are great ways to support the show financially. Also, click on the shop tab. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff for Christmas. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Give it that five-star review, a text review. If you can, on Apple Podcasts, leave that comment on YouTube. Watch the video all the way through, or at least let it play all the way through. So that way people see that, yeah, I want to, you know, YouTube will start promoting it that way, right? So we'll get more people thinking locally and acting locally. And that's essential in our modern political situation. Now, so let's talk about that. Wrapping up the week, it's election week, a lot of big news out there. And I said yesterday that even if the Republicans win, which Clearly, they, they did. Even if they win, um, there still is this question of whether they're going to do much once in power. And that has a lot to do with what the Republican Party is and what the Democrat Party is today. They're establishment parties. If you go back to, the, to John C. Calhoun, and he talked a lot about this in his disquisition on government. And how the party out of power is going to make a lot of noise about the Constitution, about civil liberties, about the constitutional protections that they have as a minority. And if they ever obtain power, they're going to ignore all of that. There's no doubt this is exactly what's going to happen. The party in power doesn't ever really care about the Constitution. They only care about their own power. And so Calhoun's position was, look, there really isn't any difference between the one faction or the other faction, once they're in power. They're just about power. So fast forward into the 1960s. And we have George Wallace running for president in 1968, and then again in 1972. 
Of course, Wallace is shot. And 1968, though, he makes a lot of waves. He makes a lot of, makes a lot of noise. Because Wallace is out on the campaign trail, and if you've ever watched any of these campaign speeches, he is excellent on camp- why he's campaigning and knowing how to work a crowd. Wallace was really good at that. And what he said was, oftentimes, there's not a dime worth of difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. They're just the same thing. They're the same thing. They don't really care about working class people. They don't really care about uh, blue collar people. They don't really care about the Constitution. They don't really care about anything. They don't care about federalism. They don't care about any of that. What they care about is their own power. And however that power can be obtained, they'll do it. This is 1968. And that idea that there's not a dime's worth of difference between the two parties became something very important in American politics. Even though Wallace was seen as this guy that was, of course, a a segregationist, a racist, this very blue-collar, anti-establishment, anti-elitist sentiment was a strong position. And I mean a really strong position. What did Trump run on in 2020? What did Trump run on in 2016, more importantly? What George Wallace ran on in 1968? It was a blue-collar, very strong anti-establishment, anti-elitist position. Very strong. What did Ronald Reagan run on in 1980? The exact same thing. What did Pat Buchanan run on in 1992 against George H.W. Bush? He didn't get the nomination, but he ran on the exact same thing. Anti-elitist, anti-establishment, the two parties are the same, and essentially what they wanted to do, and what each, each one of these candidates, Wallace, Reagan, Buchanan, Trump, what they were all trying to do, it was called populism now, and I even used that term yesterday. It's not really populism. It, you could maybe call it that. But what I would call it is traditional American conservatism, or in some ways, you know, a, a conservative form of Jeffersonian tradition, right? Jefferson himself would have been seen as someone on the left in Virginia, but overall, He was conservative in his adherence to federalism, which is a main tenant of all of these people. When Wallace sits there with William F. Buckley, and Buckley complains about Wallace having old age pensions in Alabama, and paying for a community college system in Alabama, and funding public schools, and Wallace, I mean, if you ever watch this, I mean, he is stone-faced. It's so good. Buckley doesn't know what to do about him. Buckley is frustrated beyond belief. Because Wallace will defend all of it. And he'll say, look, I don't care what you do about public schools in New York. And Buckley's aghast. Wallace really didn't, as governor of Alabama, care what was happening in public schools in New York. And public schools, anyways, were an issue for the states. And that was generally his position. Kari Lake has done the exact same thing uh, in, in her current campaign in Arizona. Somebody sent me a clip of her appearing on the Tim Pool show. And, and Glenn Beck... Apparently, I had a friend of mine text me and say, hey, uh, Glenn Beck uh, is talking about federalism, states' rights, and these kind of things, and returning to that. 
God love Glenn Beck for doing that. I mean, for years, he has, he has to get out of the Lincoln myth. I mean, he's going to have to get away from that to get to there. You can't be a Lincolnian and a states' rights person at the same time. It's just impossible. But the fact is, all these people are talking about things that were being said in the 1960s. And the 1980s. And the 1970s. I mean, look, Ronald Reagan almost won the nomination in 1976. He almost won. But because Gerald Ford had you know, this he was incumbent, got to give Ford another chance. Let's see if he can do something if he's elected. What did the Democrats do in 76? So very interesting. The Democrats went out and nominated Jimmy Carter. Why would they nominate Jimmy Carter? Well, look at his brother, Billy Carter. Billy Beer sits at the gas station, waxes poetic, has his little book, he has his, his softball team, Redneck Power. You know, his redneck manifesto. I mean, this is this is things that Billy Carter liked to do. Um, and Jimmy Carter was seen as someone who was kind of on the right. Jimmy Carter was this conservative Southern Democrat in a lot of ways, even though he was you know moderate on, on issues. But Jimmy Carter was a Jeffersonian. He was a farmer. He was a peanut farmer. His brother ran a gas station. You can't get more blue collar than that. Gerald Ford was the elitist. So he's tapping into this idea that we have this kind of you know, anti-establishment, anti-elitist strain in American politics. You can go back to the election of Martin Van Buren and William Henry Harrison in 1840. How did, how did the Whigs portray uh, Martin Van Buren? He was a man sitting in the palace. They called the White House the palace the executive mansion at the time it wasn't the White House yet. They called the executive mansion the palace. He rode in coaches, your royal coaches, ate off golden spoons, and William Henry Harrison was comfortable in a log cabin drinking hard cider. It's the spirit of blue collarism, not necessarily populism, but being just one of them, right? One of the people. You're one of them. And you believe in things that are sometimes called leftists, like well, we don't want grandma to uh, face you know, hardships if she doesn't have any money. Let's have an old age pension for her. What Wallace always insisted with this, is this was state-level things. The central government didn't need to do that stuff. But at the state, you could do anything you wanted. And this is what Buckley couldn't stand. See, Buckley was an ideologue, and I'm getting to this. Buckley was an ideologue. And the problem with American conservatism now, and the problem with American leftism now, is that they're both based on ideology. Not anything tangible or traditional. Ideology, and as my friend Sam Smith said, philosophy, don't work well with traditions. Traditions are more important. Traditions create culture. Ideology doesn't create culture. Ideology doesn't create anything tangible. It just wrecks everything. And the Straussians are ideologues. The Jaffaites are all ideologues. This is what they are. They have this, in their mind, they have this vision of America that's based on you know, what it, natural rights, whatever that means to them, and it can only go, so, once it gets to a certain point, they can't go any further, even though the left would run with it. It's not based on any tangible traditions other than this metaphysical Lincoln myth. That is not enough to have a secure culture or political culture or society. You have to have traditions. I talked about it on Tuesday in Virginia, how they were handing out liquor and barbecue and ginger cakes for people voting. And when James Madison, the ideologue, tried to come in and clean that up, they told him, no, we like barbecue and liquor and ginger cakes. 
and we're not going to have it any other way in the state of Virginia. And Madison was almost run out of town. Patrick Henry, this is Patrick Henry's problem with James Madison. Patrick Henry based almost everything he did on tradition. He said it. He said it. Our traditions in Virginia are this. I have one lamp by my feet or God, and that's the lamp of experience. And I want to know if by experience what the British crown has been doing or the ministry has been doing to send all this army over here, right? What, what's going on? Everything Patrick Henry did was experience. He thought Jefferson and Madison were too ideological. The Constitution was too much of a deviation from what real tradition was in America, and that's why he was against it. And when Jefferson and Madison were then in a position where they could be in power, Henry opposed them. It was a personal opposition, right? When, when Washington and uh, John Marshall and others you know, found out that Patrick Henry was uh, against the Republicans, I mean, they, they, they courted Patrick Henry to run for office. Patrick Henry was a traditionalist. He was, of course, very Christian, wanted to have uh, the Baptist faith as the essentially the state church of Virginia. Um, he thought that Madison and Jefferson were too ideological. There is a culture in Lynchburg, Virginia, that's very traditionally Christian. You can't escape it, and Patrick Henry was certainly part of that. So Sam Smith is right. You can't have a political culture based on ideology. Because when you do, you have to get rid of real culture and real traditions. This is where the Straussians, the Michael Antons, the Glenn Elmers, all these people, are really playing into the hands of the left. They're basically leftists. They're 19th century leftists. And this is what George Wallace understood in 1968. It's what Ronald Reagan understood in 1980. It's what Pat Buchanan understood in 1992. And it's what people who were handling Donald Trump in 2016 knew. Donald Trump is no ideologue. Donald Trump is, I mean, he's an opportunist. Donald Trump is nothing really other than an opportunist. And he saw a way to capitalize on American frustration with ideology. They didn't like leftists. They didn't like cancel culture. They didn't like woke America. They didn't like the establishment. They didn't like being run by the mainstream media. They didn't like social engineering. They didn't like any of that. And he capitalized on that in 2016. And, he, and look, he capitalized it on 2020, and if it had been a normal election in 2020, I don't think Donald Trump loses. But because of COVID, Donald Trump loses. I think we're going to see, right, everything shakes out after Tuesday, how this all works out. I don't think that, I, I think that the 2020 election was an aberration for the Democrats. And that Americans, when they go out in vast numbers and vote, will put these kind of candidates, when I say these kind of candidates, what was called the new right in 1980 into office. And let me talk about that. We've heard this term, of course, alt-right and you know all these things. And what is the new right? What is the old right? We've heard these terms. And somehow this was new, right? You had these new, these alt-right people. Uh, and whatever the alt-right is, however you want to define that, I don't even want to get into all that. Whatever that means, whoever these people are, uh, I prefer to say that, you know, and I've always been this way, that we have an American tradition, right? We're American traditionalists. And that's built on three things. And, of course, I, I take this from Clyde Wilson. And, um, you know, Lafayette Lee talked about it on his Twitter account the other day. It's true. We have three things. We have republicanism, right? Uh, we, have the con we have constitutionalism. And we have federalism. Those three things are the basis of the right. Respect for law and order 
the rule of law, right, and not social engineering, republicanism that we believe that we do elect people that represent us, and they're supposed to do our bidding, and then federalism, this belief that we have a federal republic and the states have most of the powers. A central authority is limited. You don't want the central authority engaging in social engineering. Well, in 1980, a man named Bob Whitaker edited a book entitled The New Right Papers. And there are some interesting people in this uh, particular book. Um, Clyde Wilson wrote for it, Sam Francis, Tom Fleming, and others. Now, um, people would look back at this now and say, well, Whitaker and Francis, these guys, you know, they're, they're racialists. And yeah, they went in that direction in their career. And, uh, you know, Clyde Wilson, I'll never forget having a conversation with him about Sam Francis. He said, you can't get anywhere doing what Sam Francis was doing. It's wrong to do that. We need to focus on things that are real and possible. And um, so he was critical of Sam for going in the direction he went. But this New Right Papers book is interesting because they're predicting Donald Trump in 1980. And they think that Ronald Reagan, this book was written, I think, in 1981. They're, they're predicting that Ronald Reagan will win in 1984 again on the principles of the New Right. Now, what was the New Right in 1980. It was a coalition of social conservatives, social conservatives, and um, people that believed in fiscal conservatism or you know, constitutionalism, including, including people against foreign adventurism. So you look at Donald Trump in 19, I'm sorry, in, in 2016. He comes out against NATO. He comes out against American imperialism. All right. Now that was something that was important because that's also fiscal conservatism. Donald Trump defends things that were traditionally American. For example, Donald Trump vetoed the bill that created the rena- or the naming commission that Ty Sigley uh, manipulated into getting his way to try to rename all these Confederate bases, you know, military names, all that kind of stuff. He got his way on that. And so... Uh, Donald Trump vetoed that bill. He vetoed it. One of the reasons why? Well, because of the naming commission. Republicans overrode that veto. And in fact, in the New Right Papers, they talk about the possibility of these, these kind of establishment Republicans causing some problems. Essentially, what they're doing is taking the position that there's not a dime's worth of difference between the Democrats and Republicans once they're in power. Reagan represented a deviation from this. Reagan represented a real challenge to the established order, and they had to do something about it. The establishment had to do something about it. In fact, I want to read a part of this. This is Bob Whitaker writing this. Again, this is 1981. He says, Today there is an excellent chance for a similar trend in near-term politics. And he's talking about what would happen with Democrats and Republicans. In such a case, 1984 will find Reagan victorious and pollsters again scrambling to cover their tracks. Middle-of-the-road sermons are only meaningful if the polls have not shifted. If 1980 is indeed like 1932, nothing can be more absurd than the endless preachments that Reagan must move to the old center. So what Whitaker and these conservative writers are saying, Reagan should go hard right. He should embrace the right because that's where he's really going to find support. And what did Donald Trump do? He gets into office and he goes 
pretty hard right, though he brings too much of the Straussians in and all those kind of people. I mean, look, I could I can criticize Trump for doing all that. He it, Trump, I don't know if he even expected to win. And he really didn't have enough people around to help him and say, keep these, keep these Klingons out of here, right? Keep these Klingons out of here. Whitaker says, the new right insists that for a good for the good of the country, Reagan begin co-opting potential radicals as soon as possible. This is a recommendation which pundits must see as unrealistic since their expertise resides in discussing politics as it is and recently has been. Further, it rests on an assumption which is violently rejected by the still powerful passing establishment and by those who cater to it. The idea that the American left has lost its status even as a primary opposition is not one that the media are likely to embrace with cries of joy. In 1936, the national press was as conservative as the big media today are liberal. Certainly, there is this as much as anything else was the reason they clung so single-mindedly to the idea that Roosevelt's failure would mean a return of the conservative establishment to Washington. This brings up the second mistake made by those who thought the Republicans would win in 1936. They thought 1932 was a one-time revolt, whereas it was actually the beginning of a long-term revolution. Voters who had, out of a sense of hopelessness, accepted their frustrations with rule by the business establishment through the 1920s suddenly found that it could indeed be beaten. Instead of being pacified by the 1932 results, they were encouraged to aim for more. Now again, this is where I think everyone is misreading what happened in 2020 as the trend for the future. What you are seeing in 2022 is more in line with what happened in 2016. Now, there was an opposition to Trump in 2018. The Democrats did take control of the House. And I think this is because people were frustrated with the Republicans when Trump moved to the center with the Straussians, right? He moves to the center. Republicans don't do anything. If Trump had gone to the right, I think he would have crushed the Democrats in 2018. The Republicans would have. I think they would have crushed the Democrats in 2020 had there been no COVID. And I think the results of Tuesday are clear. America is moving in a direction where you are uniting these social conservatives. This is exactly what, what uh, Whitaker is talking about here. Uniting these social conservatives with uh, you know kind of these fiscal conservatives and you're going to see a real new right party. Biden's calling it the radical MAGA Republicans. He's splitting them out already, right? This is this is where I, all this stuff works together this week. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. And so what Whitaker and all these other writers are pointing out in the New Right Papers is that we're going to have this new kind of right-wing coalition that's going to exert a tremendous amount of influence on American politics. And I don't think... I think they were predicting in 1980 and 81 it would happen. And maybe it would have if Reagan did not move to the center. This is one of the main criticisms of Ronald Reagan. All these neocons, all these Straussians got involved in the Reagan administration. And what did they do? They moved it to the middle. Reagan was pretty hard right in 81 and 82. And then they lost the 82 election. So they moved to the middle. And that's where Reagan, of course he wins, 1984, crushing majority. A landslide electoral college victory. But he could never get the, the Congress back. And so the Republicans, I mean, look, Bush, George H.W. Bush in the middle, 
Uh, Republicans realize they made a mistake. In 1995, they go to the right again. They come up with this contract for, for America, and they move to the right. They move to this pop in this populist direction. They do it. And it works for a time, but then they keep going back to the left again. They keep inching back the other way because of establishment stuff. Now, there was another piece, and I was going to do this, and I thought, eh, it's, it's not really that interesting at the end of the day. But the piece was actually written uh, in, let me see, what, what, news, what uh, publication was it in? It was in, uh, the publication is Outsider Theory. It's by Jeff Sullenberger. Jeff Sullenberger, and the title is Theory Cells in Trump World. The links between the Trump administration and critical theory are less surprising than they might seem. So what he's actually saying is that the Trumpians are in with Foucault. Now, if you don't know who Foucault is, he's the guy that essentially developed critical theory, which is the basis of all this left-wing stuff. And what he's arguing is that the left and the right are both engaging in critical theory, though in his mind, the left has moved away from critical theory because they're defending the establishment, whether it's the establishment government, whether it's the, I mean, they're defending the FBI, they're defending all this stuff that the leftist of the 1960s would have been completely against, and now they're defending all these establishment things, whereas the right has moved in this other direction. Now, the problem with this is that you had people like Wallace already criticizing the establishment back in 1968, and you could never confuse George Wallace with being an acolyte of Michel Foucault. There would never be anything about that. This, see, this is these people all deal in ideological worlds. What he's missing is that the real basis of Trump, the real basis of Buchanan or Reagan or Wallace or these people, was American traditionalism. And I, again, I mean, by saying Wallace and all that, people, oh, this race. Well, you can, if you ever read Wallace's speeches outside of the segregation stuff, right? I mean, which we want to, we want to put to bed. We don't want that anymore. Unless, I guess, you're on the left and you want to have that. But on the right, we want to put that to bed, okay? The thing is about Wallace and what he pointed out was that we have um, a, an establishment class that wants to run your lives in all kinds of different ways. It's not just you know, social engineering. It's also economic engineering. It's very Jeffersonian, and it appeals to broad swaths of the American public. Regardless of race, Regardless of background, that kind of thing appeals to people. It's about your everyday life. And this is why I say go out, think locally, act locally, and put these things into effect. When the states stand up to the center, the center has no clothes. It doesn't have the ability to fight. It cannot. It doesn't have the resources. You can have these kind of, you know, you want to call it populist, you want to call it Jeffersonian, you want to call it, you know, blue collar. You can have these things. And you can work it from the bottom up, and the central authority cannot stand it because it loses all control of you. So, this is what I wanted to talk about. Why I say that the Republicans have to be very careful, and why I'm not so certain the Republican Party, even if, even with control of Congress, is going to do much different because they're too concerned about what the center does. They're too concerned about the left. They're too concerned about their image on the media. They're too concerned about it. And because they're so concerned about it, they're not really going to be good at doing what they have to do, which would be real governance. And really, as, as people have said, move to the right. Do what you got to do. Actually do the legislation you said you were going to do. If you lose on it, fine. But I'm not so certain they're going to lose when they do it. 
I think that more Americans are in line with it than what they realize. I'll never forget, years ago, I had a colleague stop by my office, and she, she, um, she said, uh, what do you think of the election? This was after she said, I'm really a Trump supporter, but I don't want anybody to know. She's African-American. She didn't want anybody to know. She was a Trump supporter. And uh, I found that fascinating. Again, fear that she would be called out as something else because she's a Trump supporter. She just liked the idea of, hey, we like America. Make America great. That sounds great. I mean, look, that's exactly what Jimmy Carter's Malay speech was all about. Make America great again. That was Pat Cadell. Uh, that was George Wallace. That was, that was Ronald Reagan. That was Pat Buchanan. That was Donald Trump. It's what it is. It's blue-collar, working-class, a unified message. We love America. We want to be for the workers, for the people, uh, against the establishment, against the elites. And who put the full-court press on Donald Trump? The establishment and the elites and the media and Congress. They're the ones that did it. Tech industry. If you really like the establishment and the elites, then vote for the Democrats. I mean, that's what you're getting. You're getting all of that stuff. If you really are an outsider, then vote against that. And again, vote in your local and state elections as much as you can. And we know we've just had the election, but vote in those as much as you can. Get involved in those things as much as you can. All right. This is a fun week. Um, I really like doing these things more off the cuff and just kind of shooting the breeze a little bit about this stuff. But if you don't, if you want to get me five times a week, just grab that Abbeville Institute podcast. Go on out to uh, Apple Podcasts. Look for Abbeville Institute. We're on Spotify. It's also there. And uh, I, I podcast there once a week. So you can get me five times a week. You can get the Brian McClanahan Show four times a week and the Abbeville Institute podcast one time a week that we can review at the Abbeville Institute. Until, if you don't get that one tomorrow, until next week. I'll see you then.